According to the Health Board Association, GGD GGD GGHOR. That's an outtake. It's Friday, September 17th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands, and it was a lot. I'm Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Corona Lobotomy Victim. With me today is Gordon Derek, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Birthday Party Artist, and Robin Pasco, Editor-in-Chief of Dutch News and France Survivor. Uh, Robin, you just returned from holiday. I have for my uh, for my sins. Yes, it's very sad. I mean, to be back. Uh, yeah. I had a lovely time away. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you something because I uh, remembered that you had some car trouble and you had to deal with the Anway Bay. Uh, how was that experience? Because I always hear a lot of mixed experiences of the Anway Bay in specifically in France. So I want, wanted to know what's your what was your experience? It was really good, actually. I mean, we broke down sort of north of Lyon. Uh, we pulled into a little layby. We called the Anvil Bay and they said, oh, you're on private property. We can't help you. You have to call the police. So we called the police and the police <laughs> sent somebody. Uh, somebody came, um, very nice man, towed our car away to his nearby garage and then sort of abandoned us on an industrial estate in the middle of nowhere, which was kind of, you know, about <laughs> seven o'clock at night. It was a bit odd. But the Anvil Bay just organised everything. They got a taxi to take us to pick up a replacement car. Um, basically, within three hours, we were back on the road which was mm. great. And we were oh. in, rather than our little ancient Berlingo van, we were in a really fancy big Volvo. So uh, <laughs> you know, we came back in style. So I have no complaints to, apart from the fact our little Berlingo is still in France. Oh, really? uh, that kind of remains the issue when it's going to get back. But apart mm. from that, all was good. Yeah. Does, does the Berlingo need to be tested on coronavirus a couple of times? Or, uh... No, no, no. It's got its corona, corona check, you know. So ah, it just okay. needs to show a little a little QR code and yeah. it can do whatever it likes. Really. Yeah, when when it crosses like... the border, yeah. Exactly. Just yeah. like we did all holiday without yeah. any problem. So a real classic uh, Dutch holiday tradition, uh, Robin. Uh, breaking, yeah. breaking down on your way back from France, which uh, there's, there's happened to at least one member of my fam- my Dutch family I can think of. It was actually really awful because we, we saw this lorry of Dutch Dutch uh, uh, cars going down the motorway when we were on our way down, going back yeah. to Holland. And we sat there really smug laughing and going, ha ha, look, all those Dutchies who broke down. <laughs> and I even took a picture to use on Dutch news, you know, so we could do the stories. And then I thought, hmm. You just changed. Yeah. It became the story. Yeah. I yeah. did, indeed. Yeah. Not the plan. Not the plan. Yeah. So the moral of the story is don't buy a French car. Yeah, <laughs> that's always that's always a smart thing to do. Um, yeah. Let's not get into that. Yeah. And, and, um, and Paul, have you had um, a uh, unpleasant coronavirus uh, test experience this week? Then yeah, because uh, I woke up one morning with a cold and with a sore throat. And even though I am vaccinated, you know, mm-hmm. you are still supposed to get yourself tested if uh, if you have symptoms. So I uh, made an appointment. I went there. It was my second time I had to, uh, I, I had a test. Yeah. And um, it was even more unpleasant than it was before because they used to do only a, um, uh, uh, you know, testing your nose, but now yeah. they also included your throat. So yeah. uh, I, I got... Um, yeah. You had the full PCR test, basically. I got the full PCR test. So it was, 
it was unpleasant mm. um, but yeah uh, it all went also very smoothly I made the appointment uh, the, the, uh, on the morning I could come uh, the next day and I uh, got my result within 12 hours so yeah it was all very smooth I am negative by the way good uh, th- thanks Although. for t- uh, thanks for asking <laughs> um, but uh, yeah still uh, I, I still have uh, uh, that cold and um, if you uh. are outside and you start sneezing then you know corona shame is still yes. or, or sneezing sh- shame is still a thing people will turn their head towards you if you sneeze <laughs> and look at you if, if you have the bubonic yeah. plague yeah I had the same thing this week so I've, I've just been getting my garden ref- uh, uh, redone and uh, that's uh, uh, the guy working there and laying the patio kicked up a lot of dust and uh, that's Tr- mm. triggered my allergies so i was sneezing like an absolute n- 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 like i was exploding or something and yeah and then going to the supermarket with a snivelly nose and runny eyes was not a good look um no. yeah uh, at this current time but uh actually there seem to be very mixed reports from people on how they experience these coronavirus tests because i've had about three or four of them now and i haven't i've hardly felt anything to be honest my, my nose doesn't seem feel to be anything a very little yeah, just a little tickle in the nose i seem to have a very unsensitive unsin- <laughs> nasal cavity which is, yeah, uh, turns out to be very be a real bonus yes yes you're lucky no. i i thought they were horrible i've had about 25 million by now with all the the places I've done and it's horrible I hate every single one of them in fact if they don't hurt I think they haven't done a proper job and they might still be positive are you stick it stick it in even further because uh, I can't feel it yeah Uh, no I don't think it's it's that awful but you know it's also not pleasant I think uh we have uh, we have a nice range of opinions here on the podcast. We have one that uh, finds it absolutely horrible. Someone who, you know, uh, it's mildly uh, uncomfortable, and uh, Gordon uh, just no, likes I'm it. Just a robot. It. So, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much my mouth bowl. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, and you, uh, Gordon, you went um, uh, to a museum uh, last weekend, I think. Yes. Uh, and you found um, some very nice piece of Dutch artwork. Oh yeah, that's what this is. I was trying to work out uh, what this was. Yes, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ai Weiwei has um, um, put made this installation in Museum Forlinden, which is a great museum. I'd very much recommend it. But it, it's just some um, traditional-looking chairs, but they're in a kind of semicircle or a three-quarter circle. So I just posted mm. this on Twitter saying, uh, saying he's uh, done a sculpture of a Dutch birthday party. Um, and predictably, it went, uh, yeah, it went viral. Total, exactly. Totally throwaway remark, really obvious joke. They always do well yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, especially, you know, the, 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 there's one thing that the Dutch really enjoy, and that is if uh, people from other countries uh, talk about them. So, um, uh, and if you tweet in English and you have a uh, uh, an English name, then uh, then people will pick, pick that up and it will immediately go viral. Uh, Molly had some experiences with that as well yep. on several occasions. Uh, for example, for, uh, I remember when she, you know, in the, uh, in the first uh, Corona wave, when uh, people started hoarding the supermarkets, and all the shelves were empty. Molly made a joke about the uh, the, the shelf with the spices, which was uh, the only one that was still uh, <laughs> still <laughs> no full. one had touched. Yeah, uh, no one had touched. <laughs> and she joked, uh, uh, you know, there's nothing in the stores, and even then the Dutch won't touch uh, any spices. And that went also very vi- viral uh, naturally. But so, I, I um, actually, sorry, I would like to know what this sculpture was called. Because um, it might have been called the birthday party. It's not. It's not. It's no. I can't remember what it's called, but it's not called the birthday party. Uh, I don't think it's a deliberate. Uh, or it might be. Disappointing. I, I, 
I mean, he is a bit of a satirist. I don't know. He is, but I'm not sure he's that plugged into Dutch domestic culture, to be honest. Perhaps he is. I think think it's actually just called A Thousand and One Chairs, actually. There aren't A Thousand and One, but it's called something like that. How disappointing. Well, and that uh, brings us to the uh, Ophef of the Week. Um, It was a very busy week for Foreign Affairs Minister and D66 leader Sigrid Kaag. We will hear about that later in the podcast. But it all started on Tuesday this week um, when uh, PVV leader Geert Wilders said in Parliament that he had heard a rumor that Kaag would travel to the General Assembly of the United Nations next week. Why was that a problem, you ask? Because next week is also Budget Day. Uh, On the third uh, Tuesday of September, the King officially opens the parliamentary year with a speech from the throne uh, in which he outlines the government's plan for the next year. The speech is followed by the Algemene Politieke Beschouwing. That's uh, two days of debates between the Tweede Kamer and the Prime Minister on the Budget Day plans. And traditionally, the entire cabinet is present in the plenary chamber to support the prime minister and show uh, you know cabinet unity but Kaag announced that she would not be able uh, to attend the debate because she had to travel to New York to attend the general assembly Wilders demanded her presence in the Tweede Kamer writing that a senior minister simply is expected in the chamber even though she wouldn't join the debate anyway he said the Tweede Kamer shouldn't allow the minister to fly to New York on her broomstick Uh, during the most important debate of the year. And this was a reference to uh, the not-so-tasteful cartoon in NSA newspaper on Saturday, which depicted Kaag dressed as a witch flying towards two high-rise buildings with Mark Rutte's face imposed on them. Yeah, which was also another ophef. It's a huge uh, source of ophef, yeah. But in, uh, that in turn sort of bought into um, Wilders and his uh, all his uh, fans on Twitter kind of div- constantly referring to Kaag as a witch. And I think he had one tweet where he just said witch. Under, uh, on yeah. top of something that she that she'd written, so um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, yeah very uh, very distasteful, and um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. What what, yeah. what do you need to say about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then the, uh, other insult, the, the other insult that's how the other insult that the is that she's a terrorist sympathizer. So having her on a broomstick yeah. flying towards the twin towers was kind of quite. Um, yeah, not the most uh, tasteful thing I've ever seen. I I, I didn't really understand it. the um, the cartoon because what did Mark Rutte had to do with the Twin Towers? I really didn't understand it. Yeah. Uh, and the cartoon was also published on Saturday, which was 9-11, of course, 20 years after yeah. the uh, terrorist attack in New York. So, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it was very distasteful. I think. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was just cheap and uh, yeah, bad taste. And I think uh, Ruben Oppenheim was probably just uh, just, just late for the fr- for the framey bow, the Friday mirror borrow, and just <laughs> needed to dash something off quickly. And that's what he came up with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, usually he is a pretty good cartoonist. I, I think, think so but, too. Uh, yeah, I, did, yeah. yeah. I, I would usually defend him, but not in this case. Another week, another formation plot twist. Foreign Affairs Minister Sigrid Kaag resigned after a debate in the Tweede Kamer about her handling of the evacuation of Dutch nationals and Afghan helpers from Kabul, uh, which puts the formation process in even more chaos than it already was. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Mark Rutte and Health Minister Hugo de Jonge committed a coup d'état and are now officially tyrants (laughs) and dictators, if a certain lavender-sniffing MP is to be believed. Taxi app Uber lost a major battle in court, Max Verstappen gave Lewis Hamilton a headache in Monza, and Koets in the canals of Leider turn out to like fake plans. There's just too much news this week. Yeah, it needs to stop. it's just too much. Yeah. Needed to stop. And then this morning, this this rhino drowned. I mean, come <laughs> on, give us a break. Well, you know, you know, Paul, you might say that that the ophef of the week is Kirk and, and the United Nations, but of course, she won't be going anyway. Uh, given that she's now resigned as Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, she problem actually, solved. Uh, do her do her bit in the trader camera as a as a leader of a political party during the debate. So probably yeah. not what Mr. Ritter would like. Uh, 
Anyway, yeah, she resigned. Um, she resigned in the row about how the Netherlands has handled the Afghan evacuation. And Wednesday night, there was a very stormy debate about the lack of urgency shown by Dutch officials in getting people out of Kabul. And the anger that uh, MPs are feeling was made even worse by a Volkskrant story, which said the Dutch embassy in Kabul had actually been urging ministers to come up with an evacuation plan last year. MPs have also been calling for action since well before the summer. And during the debate, Kaak was forced to admit the Netherlands had made wrong assumptions and that was something she deeply regretted. But she quit on Thursday evening after Kristen Uni, which is also one of the four coalition parties, said it would support a motion of censure against her and then voted that way. Indeed, all but the three parties still talking about forming a government uh, voted against the minister. So uh, so she stood down. Uh, so, Robin, given we, um, we don't have three hours uh, here, uh, can you explain what went <laughs> wrong in Afghanistan? Or 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, it's pretty hard to tell. I mean, we've had a really long document, pages and pages and pages from the government outlining the main events and the Dutch response to them. But then for the Vox Grant to come up with the story it did only showed how selective that detailed report might well have been. There's going to be an independent investigation. But what is clear is that despite MPs calling repeatedly on ministers to get first the interpreters and then the others who worked for the coalition forces out, no real preparations seem to have been made. We don't actually know how many people were on the list of evacuees, for example. In fact, the Volkskrant claims the embassy was told it could name three people. Three people. The ambassador, the paper said, actually refused to comply. But what about the reports of 21,000 people wanting to move to the Netherlands? Yeah, that's a bit of a nasty statement and really irresponsibly reported, I think, in the press. We know that 1,673 people were evacuated from Kabul by August the 26th when the flight stopped. That included 708 Dutch nationals, 371 interpreters, various other people. What we also know is the government had all uh, opened up a special email line for people who felt that they should be evacuated to contact Now, 43,000 people contacted or they received 43,000 emails. But we don't know is how many of those were people with any connection to the Netherlands or just desperate people hoping the Dutch would save them. And the 21,000, yeah, the government has said they might be eligible for settlement. But what does that mean? They've got no clue. Hmm. I mean, they will be eligible if they meet the terms of of a motion which MPs voted for, which said that uh, anybody who worked for the Dutch forces or for the the coalition forces there should be brought out, and that includes cooks and aid workers and human rights workers and and women activists and the like. But we don't have a clue how many of those 21,000 have any hope in hell. So we've had screaming headlines in the the Telegraph, for example, about 21,000 Afghans want to come to Holland. I think at the moment we've got about 500 people have made it so far, and we haven't got a clue how many people that there are. I mean, and given that we've known the Taliban would take over Afghanistan for months, it's absurd that we don't know how many people we should have been bringing back. So, you know, the bottom line is there are plenty of reasons for CAG to, to resign, even of course she hasn't been there for that long. Uh, interestingly, however, I felt that Defence Minister Ank Bailevelt, uh, she was also censured, she lost a motion, but 
she's decided to keep her job. Mm. What a lovely uh, show of solidarity there between the coalition partners. Yeah, and it, I, I find it curious that um, this this is a, a lot of the problems in Afghanistan were caused by the fact that the the right wing parties in the coalition and in parliament were really reluctant and dragging their feet on. Um, evacuation because they didn't want to bring lots of Afghans into the country and yet it's a D66 minister that's that's carried the can. Exactly I yeah. mean it's 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 uh, it's it's ironic in that way the, the, yeah. the people I mean, that were but you know technically she's right she was in charge and they did a crap job so you know she should go. I'm not sure actually though you know what all this means for the the caretaker government and and the coalition and Paul, you've been following the formation process really closely. I mean, what do you think about all that? Kaag's resignation uh, hasn't made the formation uh, easier, to say the least. Uh, you know, as you said, constitutionally, Kaag didn't need to resign after the Tweede Kamer voted in favor of the motion of censure. But uh, that is only the case uh, after a motion of no confidence. But flashback to April, to the infamous uh, functie elders debate, which almost brought uh, an end to the political career of Prime Minister Mark Rutte. And after the debate, the Tweede Kamer passed a motion of censure against Rutte himself, who then decided not to resign but stay on as a prime minister. Uh, Kaag, who had put the motion to the vote herself, told journalists that she felt uh, he should have resigned. And uh, if she was uh, put in that position, she would have taken responsibility and offered her resignation. Uh, but she was a different person, she said back then. And in light of these statements, she didn't have any choice but to resign uh, after she was indeed put in that same position um, uh, uh, yesterday. And. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the constitution. There is a big difference between a motion of censure and a, and a motion of no confidence. A motion of censure, you can regard that as a yellow card from the from parliament. They say, well, you, you did a bad job, but you can stay on. And yeah. a motion of no confidence is a red card. You have to resign. You don't have, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, is it not uh, the difference that the motion of censure is disapproving of the policy, and motion of no confidence is actually disapproving of the person in the job? Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, a yellow card. Uh, uh, you, uh, you know, you could also regard it as a sort of um, uh, moment of reflection for a uh, for a minister. Uh, they can decide uh, to to stay on, but they can also decide to 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 step down. And that then the latter is what what Kaag did. And um, you just mentioned uh, Minister Bijdeveld of Defence and Magrutte because it was a, a motion of censure directed against the cabinet as a whole, not so much as her in person. Uh, they decided uh, uh, that they could stay on. So yeah, it was uh, in this regard, it was a personal choice, uh, even though it, you know Kaag he didn't really have a choice uh, given what she had said in April about Rutte. And another complicating factor is the fact that uh, the motion of censure against Kaag was brought forward by PvdA MP Kati Perry. Uh, since the election, Kaag has preferred and insisted that if she would join a new coalition, it should at least contain uh, a progressive party, namely the PvdA party. Uh, it remains the question if this preference me remains now that she is brought down uh, on the initiative of the Labour Party. Uh, and next, we have to take a look at the ChristenUnie, the party that for a second time since the formation placed a bomb under the formation process. Uh, firstly, after its leader Gertjan Segers had ruled out joining a coalition with Mark Rutte as the new prime minister after the uh, Functie Elders debate in April. Uh, Segers later took that statement back during uh, the Easter 
Easter weekend, but has since uh, been uh, invited many times to the negotiating table, but has never felt welcome, he said that many times uh, uh, to the press. Um, not so much by Rutte, but by Kaag, who opposes the idea of continuing the current coalition with a Christian party. Uh, ChristenUnie MP Don Seder was highly critical uh, at Kaag uh, and the other ministers during the Afghanistan debate, but it wasn't clear they would support the motion of censure. Um, the vote was scheduled uh, the next day after the debate, and during the afternoon it became clear the ChristenUnie faction had decided to support it, which put it over at the majority threshold. And um, interestingly enough, as I said, this was a motion of censure directed against the cabinet as a whole. So uh, ChristenUnie, a, still a coalition partner, mm. supported a motion of censure against their own coalition, yeah. which is also very... Um, uh, very telling, I think, uh, and it shows that the Kissini basically regards themselves as sort of loose and independent from mm. from the coalition. Yeah, uh, the, the, from the, this the, point, they've kind of exited the coalition already, even though they're still they, they still have um, uh, caretaker ministers in the cabinet. Yes, yeah. and and this is you know we're going to talk about Corona later, but they also voted uh, against uh, the Corona pass, the yeah. QR code pass. Uh, even though that's also a policy of, of the cabinet. So yeah, yeah the, the Christian Union really regards themselves no longer as part of the coalition, it seems. Yeah, so, so it seems as if they fairly they, they, they firmly shut the door on um, participating in the next government then. Uh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and obviously, I mean, the, the, I've seen some discussion about that, uh, whether or not this was uh, kind of payback from the Christian Union over the way that, because Kark was quite harsh towards them and um, was drew quite a firm line in the sand that she didn't want to go back into government with them, um, or was the principled stance um, because they have been you know very critical of the uh, even their own cabinet's uh, record on refugees yeah and, and also because uh, uh, of course the, in the coalition it was agreed that uh, the coalition the cabinet wouldn't uh, propose any um, uh, any more legislation on medical ethical issues but then in the past four years there were these uh, these 60 MPs who uh, independently uh, individually drafted bills on these topics, for example, the donor law and the euthanasia law. This wasn't cabinet policy, uh, but it did annoy uh, the Christian Uni very much that it was drafted and that it passed. So yeah, it was suggested that this was sort of payback for uh, how the how Sester has been uh, dealing with Christian Uni in the past four years and in the formation process. I don't think that's true. It isn't in their DNA to take revenge uh, over these sort of issues. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think they they, they don't. Uh, Play those this kinds is the of games, case. No, I don't yeah. think so. They just judged it uh, independently. But as I said, they, they regard themselves no longer sort of part of the coalition. So yeah, they uh, they allowed themselves more room than they would uh, otherwise do, I think. But what does this mean for the formation, Paul? Where are we? What does it mean for Kag's career? Yeah, well, uh, she decided to resign, but that doesn't mean her political career is over. That's also interesting. Usually when a minister resigns, the political career is over, right? But this is not the case now. Uh, she told journalists that she will stay on as MP and will remain Desaster's faction leader. And that means that while her trip to New York is cancelled, she still has to travel to an estate on the heathlands around Hilversum because she and other political leaders are invited by informateur Johan Remkes for an informal weekend. Uh, his official task is to investigate the minority cabinet. But, you know, after having talked to a large number of parties uh, in the past week, he said he's going to make one final effort to form a stable majority coalition. So good luck to Remkes uh, <laughs> having them all over for the weekend. Mm. I, mean, I, I don't envy him at the moment, I have to admit. If anyone can pull it off, uh, Johan Remkes can. That's it. Yeah, that's true. I, I seem to remember us months ago 
after the election talking about the next cabinet and we all had different ideas about what was going to happen. I mean, what do you yeah. think is going to happen now? Uh, yeah, it's it's so hard to say. I mean, it can it can go all uh, can go either way. Uh, maybe because of all the turmoil, uh, someone uh, Rutte or Hoekstra will say, "Well, let's try this uh, this combination with PvdA and GroenLinks." After all, uh, I mean, the ChristenUnie is now really uh, you know the door for the ChristenUnie is really shut. That majority option is really off the table. Let's try to investigate that one. Maybe they will go for a, for a minority uh, cabinet after all. It's, it can all it can go all the either way. I think it's still uh, everything is open, but it's uh, it's so frustrating. It's taking so long, and as I said, every week we we seem to have another plot twist and more complicating <laughs> factors. And it is, um, I mean, from a popcorn consumption point of view, it's all very exciting. But you yeah. know, if we we just want a, a new government, we want stability, and we want we've uh, got stability. We the country <laughs> works fine without any any formal government making new policy. It works fine. <laughs> That's What's right, but it reduces us to Belgium, and we don't really don't want that. <laughs> yeah, the, the roads will start falling apart soon. Exactly, yeah, as they already do at the Haringvliet. Yeah. You don't feel yeah. those roads if you're in a big fancy Volvo. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I think maybe has shifted as a small point, which we've all forgotten about, because it was back in the dim and distant past of last Sunday, is that the CDR had this conference at the weekend uh, where Vodka Hoekstar... Uh, looked like he might be having a hard time from his party members, but actually it was quite a kind of um, reconciliation, and he now seems to be back on board as a. As the CDA Congress. I completely forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> I know. Even more Everybody news. Did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We when when it was announced, uh, you know, Peter Omtzigt resigned from the CDA faction. Mm. It was announced they were going to have an emergency uh, party conference. We all had flashbacks to that 2010 uh, party conference when you know they had to decide if they would uh, join a coalition with Mark Rutte with the support of the PVV. Uh, we all expected it to be just as entertaining. Uh, it turned out that that wasn't Bit the case. Squib, really. uh, yeah, it was very boring last uh, last weekend. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it shows that Hoekstra enjoys the support of the CDA uh, memberships, uh, uh, the, the the CDA members. Um, I expected at least a little bit of uh, opposition uh, uh, and a little bit of support for Peter Omzicht, who, after all, almost won uh, half, uh, you know, won almost half of the votes in the leadership election. Mm. But that wasn't really the case. He uh, Hoekstra really got all the support he uh, he wanted, I think, and and the trust of the of the members. Yeah. But you uh, know what? What I don't get is why do the CDA have such a hugely important role in this formation process? I mean. When you think about it, they lost a bunch of seats in the election. They're nowhere near one of the biggest parties. Why are they so influential? Because they are required for majority. Yeah, and they're Rutte's preferred partner as well, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. he's just saying that. I think Rutte, Rutte is probably able to work together with any party. Uh, uh, but yeah, if you want a stable coalition, then uh, a, a small coalition uh, is preferable. Uh, you know, we had a coalition with four part parties in the last uh, year that went relatively uh, well, but it's hard to keep them together. So if you want a stable coalition, you want as as, as few parties as possible, and then you just uh, 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 take the largest parties uh, uh, in your coalition. And to say, yeah, I was the, what was it, the fourth party? Yeah, the fourth party. Yeah. So um, yeah, they are just a logical, uh, logical uh, coalition partner, I think, from that point of view. 
but yeah, it, uh, 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 you're right. They lost so many votes. They, they maybe they shouldn't have that big an influence based on the election results. But uh, yeah, this is uh, it is the the mathematical reality of uh, of the coalition. I think. Yeah, and the CDR I think still have the sense that they're drawn towards power. They feel that they are you know a, a party of government and they should be in charge. So I think yeah. that was very. The, yeah. the, the, Speaking of party DNA, this, yeah. it's a, governing is in that DNA. Yeah. yeah. The One and a Half Metre Society, the club nobody wants to join, will officially end on September the 25th. Mark Rutter and Hukhodi Yonga announced at a press conference on Tuesday that most of the pandemic restrictions will be abolished. The work from home rule is being eased, although only in language really, I think, um, and nightclubs will be able to open again, but only until midnight. <laughs> so technically there won't be nightclubs, they would just yes, will be evening yeah, clubs. They'll be evening clubs, yes. Yeah. yeah. Outdoor festivals will be able to take place and indoor events can go ahead with 75% capacity. To replace the one and a half metre distancing rule, there will be a coronavirus pass system for all indoor venues, including bars, restaurants, cinemas and theatres, but not for cafe terraces. So that was decided in a vote in Parliament on Thursday night. People will have to download a QR code to be shown on entry in the coronavirus check app to prove they've either been vaccinated, recovered from COVID in the last six months, or tested negative in the last 24 hours. So, uh, if I understand correctly, you're allowed to sit on a terrace without the QR code? Yes, you can. But then if you go indoors... Yeah, you, yeah. if you need to go to the bathroom or you yeah. need to pay indoors, then you then you technically need that uh, QR code. Yeah. Okay, this will definitely lead to a lot of breaking the rules, but okay. Yeah, I, I mean, there's been so much going on about this. I mean, barkeepers revolting, cafes saying we're not <laughs> going to take part. What's going on? I mean, we used it in France. We used it everywhere. It was so damn simple. It wasn't true. You know, yeah. you, you you showed this thing, they scanned it on your phone and that was you. You were done. And then you went in, you took your mask off and all was fine. Yeah. Um, but the catering sector is really unhappy about it. So they're accusing the government of basically using them to coerce people into getting vaccinated. Um, some bar owners have said they won't enforce the rule. Um, Amsterdam City Council says it um, will police it only very lightly. It won't find businesses as long as they are seen to be carrying out at least spot checks on their customers, but not checking every customer at the door. Uh, Hubert Bruls, the chair of the council safety boards, admitted they don't really have the resources to check every single customer in every single bar, but he did warn that venues that deliberately refuse to participate would risk fines and could be shut down. So uh, is the Corona Pass regime having an effect on vaccines? Well, it seems to be, because um, according to the Health Board Association, KKDGHOR, uh, the number of people booking appointments for a vaccine doubled in the last week. So around 15,000 people booked in for a jab on Tuesday. Uh, the vaccination rate's been slowing down in recent weeks, but uh, we are up to about 65% of the population now, the whole population, not just adults, uh, being fully vaccinated. Lowest rate, of course, in the younger population who tend to spend more time in bars and restaurants, or certainly in bars and nightclubs, uh, and that's mainly because they started later. Hugo de Jonge did have some very harsh words at the press conference for people who are refusing to be vaccinated. He said, choices have consequences. The freedom of a small group which has not been vaccinated impinges on the freedom of the large group that has. So the vaccination rate's going up again a little bit. But, you know, how are the infection numbers looking? 
Well, they are coming down slowly. Um, they flatlined through August. Um, but it's kind of good news because a lot of people expected that we'd start to see a surge now because the schools and universities have gone back. It's autumn. And this is the time of the there year. There was a Grand Prix. There was a Grand Prix. Yeah. And uh, this time last year, we started to see the, the second wave. Um, but on Thursday, the average number of infections dropped below 2,200 for the first time since uh, early July. And that's a, in the last week, we've seen cases decline by about 12%. Um, for me, the most encouraging thing is that the positive test rate is also heading downwards it's down to about eight percent now um and usually that's the first thing to start going up again when uh, things go wrong well i contributed to you know getting this uh, positive test rate down so yeah you can thank me later well done so actually there are actually more tests being done because schools are going back um but fewer of them are coming back with positive results the government said this week it's going to change the basis of this pandemic strategy now. It'll focus on hospital admissions rather than infections. Remember that they also did this last August uh, with such success that we had a massive second wave in the autumn. <laughs> so we can look forward to that. But they say now more of us have been vaccinated, the infection rate's not so important. But the hospital numbers are still not looking that great because about 50 people a day are being admitted to hospital with COVID-19 and around 13 are being taken into intensive care. Yeah, still lots of work to... Uh... To be done. Yeah, um, I think the numbers need to be lower by quite a bit before we can really feel safe. But yeah, um, yeah. But the Corona Pass. I mean, from a practical point of view, as you experienced in 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 France, Robin, uh, it, it's 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 not so much a problem. But from a uh, moral and ethical point of view, it might be a bigger problem because uh, the Tweede Kamer uh, had the debate yesterday, and yeah, almost the majority said that uh, it excludes. Um, people who refuse to get vaccinated from society. and uh, yeah, It doesn't, it's, though. It's no. a load of nonsense. Just go and get a test if you don't want to. I mean, you can't go to certain countries in the world if you haven't had a vaccination for yellow fever. What's the difference? I really don't understand it. I mean, I feel very sorry for people who can't have a vaccine because it doesn't work on them or they've got compromised immune systems. They should have free tests. They should be, you know, facilitated as best as we can. But people who just can't be bothered or who've got weird ideas about microchips and Bill Gates, you know, why should I be forced to do something or run the risk of getting coronavirus off you just because you're too selfish, basically? It, it's, a, it's a fascinating debate here. I mean, it has played out in France to some extent. In Italy, it doesn't seem to have been an issue at all. I mean, there they're even bringing in sort of compulsory vaccination proof for people in a lot of jobs. Uh, yeah, and in Italy, of course, uh, I think the, the law they brought it, they're bringing in now says that uh, if you don't get vaccinated and you can't show a vaccination certificate at work, you can be sent home without pay after five days, which is really yeah. harsh. And I think that yeah. does go too far. But compared to compared to that, uh, it's actually a pretty mild measure. It just means you, if you don't want to be vaccinated, you have to take a test, which is free. Um, before you go into a restaurant. so Yeah, just like every restriction in the Netherlands has been uh, very mild compared to other countries. Um, yeah. yeah, but, but still okay. people are kicking up a big uh, song and dance about it. If you've got a bit more time on your hands now that you're not dashing off to top UN meetings in New York, <laughs> why not sponsor the Dutch News Podcast on Patreon? For as little as a dollar or a euro per day, you can help us to help you keep track of what's going on in the Netherlands and your donations really do help to keep this podcast going. We give all new patrons a shout-out on the podcast to say thank you and the chance to ask us any questions you may have about the Coalition Talks, the coronavirus rules, or Dutch birthday rituals. So, if you'd like to join our intrepid band of sponsors, log on to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl. 
taxi service Uber has been in the news this week after judges in Amsterdam ruled that drivers should be treated as ordinary employees with paid holidays, proper wages and everything else that regular employment entails. The case was bought by the FNV Trade Union, which has been waging war on these so-called platform companies for years. So could you tell us what the case was really about? Yeah, well, the FNV filed the case in June. They argued that Uber was underpaying drivers and treating them as employees rather than the independent contractors, which they are supposed to be. That means they would be responsible for paying tax, for deciding when they worked, exactly what work they were going to do, etc. Uber, of course, uses its standard argument that it's merely a technology company that connects passengers to drivers. The court, however, disagreed, stating that the legal relationship between Uber and these drivers meets all the characteristics of an employment contract. After all, Uber determines the hourly rate, who can or cannot access the app, who gets which ride and how the rides are carried out. Uh, but this is not the first case of this type that uh, the FNV has brought to court, right? No, no, not at all. I mean, earlier this year, the FNV won a similar case against a meal delivery service Deliveroo, which, like Uber, claims it's merely a technology platform collecting riders to restaurants. That case, in which the court ruled that the Deliveroo delivery workers are pseudo-freelancers and should be paid in line with the official pay agreement, has now been referred to the Supreme Court. Interestingly, it was Deliveroo that in in 2017 decided to restrict delivery work to freelancers, which they said at the time would give people more freedom to decide where and when to work. That is, of course, the same argument used by Uber. And Uber, by the way, is appealing against uh, the court decision as well. So that one will run and run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so how big is the problem, actually, of these uh, platform companies? Well, it's big enough for them to be worried about what the next cabinet might do. Uh, In June, (laughs) six of them, including Deliveroo, Temper, which does temporary employment in the hospitality sector, cleaning company Helpling, which also does it for cleaning, All these companies that require self-employed labour called for a discussion about setting up a social accord to guarantee these gig economy workers' rights. Of course, the timing of the request was aimed at the next government and the labour market reforms which are in the making, uh, particularly when it comes to contract and temporary labour. Actually, last year, the government's SER advisory body said that even though just 1% of the Dutch workforce works for platform-based companies, These platforms can distort the market because the rules that apply to other companies don't apply to them. The research also showed that 7 in 10 gig economy workers are under the age of 35 and 66 supplement their earnings with other paid jobs. That, of course, means 30% are older and probably need the money. Yeah, that's a a big problem, right? And if you ask uh, uh, the employees of these platform companies uh, how they feel about these rulings, then it really depends on uh, if you're speaking to a younger person or an older person, because if you're a younger person, it's just a side job and, you know, it's uh, what you do to to get some more money while you're studying or whatever, then, you know, it's it's very um, appealing that you can just decide whenever you're going to work, you know, you just uh, turn on your app and uh, you are working. Um, But if you are uh, someone who is older, and has a family and uh, uh, you know is worried about pensions and stuff like that then they applaud the the ruling of, of the court so yeah it's um, it, it depends really on, on who you ask if if they are positive or not about the ruling a lot of it is also about unfair competition too of course yeah. because regular taxi companies who've sort of many of them have set up their own kind of similar system 
in a way, have been forced to rethink the way they work. And that's the whole point. Platform companies say they're disrupting the economy. But, you know, I love the way Airbnb, for example, it calls itself, you know, a platform. It, it's not a platform. It's a rent holiday rental company. They're not that disruptive, really. I mean, they've always existed. You can always phone up a company and book a flat, you know, that somebody is privately renting. The fact that you can just do it automatically online. I don't really get it sometimes. Sports news. Uh, Ajax flew out of the blocks at the start of their Champions League campaign with a 5-1 victory over Sporting Lisbon in Portugal. Uh, Sebastian Allaire struck twice in the first 10 minutes and ended the match with four goals, uh, while Stefan Berghaus bagged a fifth later on. Allaire was evidently making up for lost time after he missed Ajax's European campaign last season because the club um, forgot to register him <laughs> with UEFA. I forgot about that. Uh, uh, did he try to swim for a Polish uh, swimming team on the Olympics uh, this summer as well? Quite or possibly, not? yeah. Hmm. Um, uh, Ajax boss Eri Ten Hag compared him to Marco van Basten, which uh, may stretch, be stretching things a little far. <laughs> Allaire's exploits were also an effective repost to his many detractors, including fans of his former club West Ham United, but also Telegraaf journalist Valentine Driessen, who said about a month ago that Allaire wasn't good enough for the Champions League. Do you know what the Telegraaf's headline was for the game, Paul? Uh, n- no, but the Telegraaf's always very good at headlines, <laughs> so I'm really curious. It was Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is not the best work, but uh, no, yeah, I, I didn't uh, think so. no, no. So, uh, what about the other European games? A mixed bag of results. Uh, PSV drew two of them with Real Sociedad in their opening Europa League match. Uh, same score then for AZ Alkmaar in the Conference League, this new competition that no one is really interested in. <laughs> uh, they just keep uh, inventing all these weird uh, yeah. leagues. They they started to look like uh, speed skating because you know all of a sudden you also have the Tour of Britain and the Tour yeah. of I don't know, um, Croatia and stuff like yeah, that. It's like sort of the footballing version of the trader camera elections. There are just more and more you know, options yeah. and parties. More split-offs and, and parties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we uh, need a kiesdrempel for, for, for football <laughs> leagues, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Conference League is really weird because on the one hand... Is it have, weirder than the Nations League? No, maybe not quite as weird as the Nations League. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, Tottenham Hotspur are now at the Altmar's group and they were in the Champions League final like uh, two years ago. <laughs> uh, but they've, you've also got um, Slovenian champions NS Mura who lost 2-0 at home to Vitesse Arnhem. So good was up for Vitesse. As at Alkmaar, they drew 2 all with um, Randers FC of uh, Denmark, um, which uh, was disappointing because they, they, they were twice took the lead in that game. Okay. So. Is it uh, is the Conference League a bit uh, comparable to, for example, the um, Johan Cruijffschaal, where you also have larger teams uh, competing against smaller teams and stuff like that? Or am I saying something weird you now? You mean the Cup, yeah. And then you have these sort of yeah. weird uh, yeah, sort of amateurs or part-timers Fallen dumb lining up against uh, yeah, Ajax and PSV. Yeah, exactly. But that's great because yeah. you get you give the small guys the chance to play against the big guys, and sometimes you get interesting results. It's fab. I love that's it. That's true. It is yeah. true. And there was also a bit of a come down from Zandvoort for Max Verstappen, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, Verstappen went into the weekend with a slender three-point lead in the drivers' championship over Lewis Hamilton. Uh, he extended it to five points by finishing second in the sprint race on Saturday, which I didn't even realize they had sprint races in Formula One. But uh, yeah, this was the second time the yeah. first uh, time was in uh, uh, Silverstone uh, which also uh, it, it's all apparently uh, the, the sprint races is, is a recipe for drama yeah. on uh, on the main event no it was it was really quite exciting so yeah. uh, otherwise in the main race you'd have had uh, Hamilton on pole position I think and um, but instead yeah. he actually lost no. that he lost his pole position in the, 
sprint race um, and ended up behind Verstappen. But then during the main race, uh, we had more drama because um, Max Verstappen basically ended up parking his car on Hamilton's head. Yeah. <laughs> after they uh, they collided on the chicane on lap 26. Um, there are all kinds of recriminations and repercussions afterwards. Uh, Hamilton was suggesting that Verstappen had run into him deliberately. Verstappen said the world champion had squeezed him out. Mercedes team boss Toto Wolff uh, called it a tactical foul, um, and other drivers, including Jacques Nielder, said it was a racing incident. The stewards took a different view. They decided Verstappen was mainly to blame for the collision. Uh, they penalised him three places on the grid for the Russian Grand Prix, on which is on September the 26th. Yeah, and it reminds us, of course, when um, uh, Max Verstappen crashed out of Cops Corner at uh, Silverstone a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it, it was also an, an, an incident uh, involving Lewis Hamilton and him. And uh, yeah, uh, it, 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 that caused a lot of debate among fans for who was, who was, uh, whose fault it was uh, uh, or not. Lewis Hamilton was uh, penalized five, a five-second grid uh, penalty uh, during that race because he you know stayed in the race and Max Verstappen crashed with I think that accident was 53G or something it was it was an insane blow uh, mm. uh, into the barriers and now this was you know also an incident but a slow speed incident because they uh, they were driving through the chicane yeah. but yeah it's uh, it was a, it's a recipe for for drama this uh, these yeah but uh, how much of this is hype you know I mean how much yeah, of it you so need much. it the good yeah. guy the bad guy I mean you know Formula One it's got a bad name it's highly polluted costs a fortune and it's usually quite boring as well this is an unusually yeah. exciting season so exactly yeah so how much of it has been cooked up behind the scenes you know i don't know it's uh, i don't think that you can cook this up uh, i mean if you cook this up then it will not happen this way no i, I don't it's, mean it's, it's to deliberately all... cooked it up but the hype of you know everybody's now watching yeah. oh you know what's for stuff yeah. i'm gonna do to hamilton this week you yeah know? yeah that's it's all, right. it's all part it? of the hype and uh the drum on the track really um uh complements the hype indeed yeah Koots in Dutch canals turn out to be crazy about fake plants, researchers from Naturalis Biodiversity Center in Leiden have found. Twelve koot nests from the canals of Leiden were analyzed and plastic waste was found in all of them, which isn't an uncommon building material for birds, but three of the nests also contained fake plants, the first time the use of it has been uh, recorded by scientists. Natural material is scarce in canals, so coots use everything they can find to build their nests. But the Leiden researchers are also involved in a large-scale analysis and categorization of waste in the Leiden canals. And artificial plants are rarely found there, uh, which suggests that the coots generally think the plastic plants are natural. It is fascinating, but it is also sad at the same time, had researcher Auke Florian Hiemstra told NRC. Florian is a nice, appropriate name, I think, if he is researching uh, uh, plants and fake plants. He explained that uh, he had put the nests, which uh, he collected after the breeding season, uh, in the freezer to get rid of parasites and still found green bits sticking out of them afterwards. Puzzled that the plant material had survived the freezing, he realized it actually were fake plants. A study has been published in the scientific journal Behavior. Uh, the contents of root the contents of coot nests is a larger research project by Heemstra uh, on meerkootnest.nl. People can report what they see in coot nests. And findings so far include sunglasses, windshield wipers, and for some mysterious reason, reports of face masks have grown mm. exponentially the past year or so. What a mystery. What a mystery indeed. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, more sad animal news uh, this week, uh, this time from Drenthe. Yeah, it came in, I think, just this morning, a very yeah. tragic love story from uh, Wildlands Adventure Zoo in Emma, which I thought was called uh, um, 
Norder Dierenpark. No, 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 it's, no it's, it, 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 they rebranded it Wildlands when they extended it and uh, built a new site on the edge of edge of the town. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I missed that news. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd call it a love story either, actually, if you uh, explain what happened. No. No. Well, it was supposed to be a love story, but uh, it ended differently. Uh, male rhino Limpopo was welcomed two weeks ago to the zoo as part of a breeding program. He was introduced to the other female rhinos in the zoo in you know separate spaces, and initially it was thought that the animals were, uh, got along very well. But when Limpopo was released in the actual enclosure, it scared the female rhinos so much they started to flee. Limpopo chased the females, after which one of them, Elena, slipped and fell into a pool. Um, you know, she is over two tons heavy and she was unable to stand up again and unfortunately she drowned before caretakers arrived at the scene to help her uh, the zoo and the caretakers uh, were shocked by the incident they emphasized elena wasn't killed by limpopo and that it was simply a very tragic accident so mm. yeah it was uh, very sad news yeah. and uh, yeah it's all over the news and people are really um, uh, well, yeah really this poor female rhino had been running for 15 minutes to get away from this guy yeah, yeah. i mean there's this kind of weird assumption in a breeding program. I'm going to introduce, you know, Limpopo to male. Elena and they're going to mate and have babies. And Elena obviously took one look at him and thought, hell no, and ran, you know. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, but you no, know, they 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 they, uh, they tested if they got along well. Uh, you well know, that's the, 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 the dating the app, isn't it? That's yeah. the Tinder. You know, you kind of look that's at each right. other. Oh, it's quite interesting. Could be nice. Meet in person. No way. I'm out yeah. of here. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, um, bit, uh, bit, yeah, I think probably is quite a, a frightening experience to be pursued by by a horny male in Drenta in general. <laughs> yeah, you have more experience with that, uh, Gordon. Yeah. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also back us on Patreon now at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. And you can earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Gordon Derrick and Robin Pasco. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week with Budget Day News. Hey! Hey. More news, more news. Yeah.